with me out of respect for the Word of God and turn to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to read verses 6 through 9. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Let's pray. Father, we are Your servants. We are Your servants by adopting grace. We are Yours because You have worked within us by the power of Your might. And we pray now, Father, that You would frame our thoughts and our minds with the wisdom which is from above, which is pure, peaceable, and gentle, and produces the fruit of righteousness. And Lord, as we learn of your wisdom and learn to submit to it, help us, Father, to cast out the old wisdom, the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of this world, which only brings dissensions and jealousies and rivals and bitter conflicts and distorts and twists truth and causes our hearts to be bared and to turn away from the love of God. Lord, would you open your word unto us and seal it upon our hearts, for this alone you can do. And we plead for this work through the power of your Spirit. By Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, sometimes when we want to speak emphatically to drive home a point, we use what's called hyperbole. Hyperbole. It's to overstate our position in a very dramatic way for the sake of a powerful effect. I'll give you an example. I know that you wouldn't say this, you parents, and I wouldn't say it either to my children, but let's just say they kept repeating the same uh, thing over and over and over again that we said not to do. And to the point that it's really bothering us because they're being disobedient and it's wrong, and so we say to them, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you so hard you won't be able to sit down for a week. Now that would be hyperbole, because none of us would do that, because we love our children, because we're not trying to hurt them through discipline. It's a means of instruction, really. But it's hyperbole, it's overstating the point for dramatic effect to get a point across in a powerful way. As we look at our passage this morning, let's connect that idea of hyperbole to what Paul says, and let's see if that's what Paul is into. Is Paul simply gauging in hyperbole here in our passage when he says in verse 1, I did not come to you with the superiority of speech or of wisdom. Then in verse 2 he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then in verse 4 he said, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Then in 5 he says, so that your faith would not rest on wisdom but on power of God. And now in verse 6 all of a sudden he says, but we do speak wisdom. The question that I want to ask of you this morning is the Apostle Paul just simply gauging in hyperbole. He said, I don't preach wisdom. I don't preach wisdom. I don't preach wisdom. And I don't preach wisdom because I don't want your faith to rest on something that's of this world. But then, by the way, I do preach a little bit of wisdom. 
Is that what the Apostle is saying here? And I think we have to answer that emphatically, no. Paul is not switching around here after saying repeatedly for a chapter that he doesn't preach wisdom, and now all of a sudden he does. He's taking that word, he's redefining it in a sense. We'll look into that in a moment, how he redefines it. But basically, we could just say here at the outset that the wisdom that the Apostle Paul preaches is not the wisdom of this world. The wisdom that Paul preaches, and he uses that in an ironic sense, is the wisdom from on high, the wisdom from God, which has been hidden from eternity past, which is a mystery, which is about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To show the bankruptcy and the emptiness of worldly ways of thinking, Paul sets up a contrast between two kinds of wisdom. A wisdom of this world, and then a wisdom which is from above. Let's work through this contrast for a little bit here, and we'll see the negative side of it. The wisdom which is of this age. And mind you, Paul is driving at showing the emptiness and the bankruptcy of human wisdom in contrast with the glorious wisdom of the cross. The contrast with worldly wisdom is picked up here, first of all, in this phrase in verse 6, not of this age. He says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom which is not of this age. I want to dwell on that word for a minute because it's such an important qualifier. Turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Uh, it's really the only text that I want to turn to. I'll read to you a several different other texts where this particular phrase is used. But it is a word that is used very often in the New Testament to describe a very profound contrast between uh, two ages and along with that two views of reality and two effects and a whole series of different things. But here Jesus uses uh, this word or this phrase, this age, verse 34, Luke 20. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. And then verse 36, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like the angels and the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now I hope you see here that Paul contrasts two different ages. He says in verse 34 that there are people who are of this age, and then in verse 35 he says there is a that age. By doing this, Jesus is simply picking up a well-known Jewish category of thinking about time. When the Jews, or rather the rabbis, studied the Old Testament prophecies and they reflected upon that, they basically argued that there's two categories of time. There's the category of time that is this age. And this age, they argued, began with Adam and his fallenness. And that this age that he's referring to there is an age characterized by futility and fallenness and sin and depravity and darkness. And then also some normal creaturely operations. It's also an age that is characterized by death, as you see in verse 36. Mortality, for they cannot even die anymore. That's a contrast saying they can die in this age. Now contrary to this age, Jesus says there is a that age, the future age. That is the messianic age. That is the age of kingdom come with power. That is the age of the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy. That age is eternal life. 
And what Jesus says is that that age is characterized by a whole series of qualities. And one of them is immortality. One of them is resurrection. One of them is life. One of them is freedom from sin and from its power and its constraints and its consequences. But what this does here is it opens up for us a way of looking at reality that Jesus and his apostles routinely use to describe the world in which we live. Jesus, for instance, uses this phrase, this age again, in Mark chapter 4, in the parable of the sower. And he warned that the elements of this age, the attractions of this age, the temptations of this age, primarily the temptations of, of material prosperity and wealth, Jesus warned, will work to steal the gospel out of hearts of those who have believed. He warns about the power of the affections being swept away. The torrent of worldly pursuits, particularly material prosperity. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 uh, gives us another insight into the quality of this age. And it's not a good quality. He says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 that Jesus Christ was sent and delivered over to death to redeem us from what? This present evil age. There Paul categorizes this age as radically and fundamentally an evil age. The only way out of it is to be delivered to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the way this age will always be until it is replaced with kingdom come in power. That age, the messianic age, come in power and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the inhabitants of this age, the people of this age, are under the sway of Satan and demonic influence. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, Satan is the god of this world who is blinding people's eyes to the truth. In a different way, just shaded somewhat differently, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. He describes the manner of life of people who live in this age, in Adam, in fallenness, in slavery to sin. He describes it as a following after the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. In other words, he's saying that uh, the people who are outside of Christ are subject to a demonic power and influence which is at the root of their sinfulness. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, If any man thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become a fool in order to become wise. Again, he's warning the Christians there in Corinth, don't be buying into the wisdom of this age because the people who are most advanced in it who have the greatest expertise in it are the kind of people who have to be deprogrammed almost entirely for them to advance in understanding the principles and the truth of the gospel because the wisdom of this age makes people feel self-empowered and self-righteous and proud and arrogant and that all becomes a stumbling block to the gospel again the apostle Paul uses uh, this phrase, this age, in Romans chapter 12, perhaps a verse that many of you uh, know quite well, when Paul, after exhorting 
of the Romans and teaching them the gospel turns from proclamation to exhortation. He calls upon them to have a changed life. And here's what he says to the Christians. He says, do not be conformed to this age, but by the renewing of your mind be transformed. Don't be conformed, he says, to this age. Don't be shaped by it. Don't be influenced by its attitudes, its desires, its goals, its dreams, its values. Don't conform to that. He says you be transformed. Have a complete change of mind, an essential change of mind, because the thinking and the attitude of the way this world operates is radically sinful. Uh, What I just tried to do was not use a lexicon to prepare my sermon this morning, but to get you to start thinking about what Paul was doing here as we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as he sets up this contrast between these two kinds of wisdom. The wisdom which is from above, which is centered at the cross, and the wisdom which is from this world. Uh, What he is trying to say, first of all, you Corinthians who are being influenced by this wisdom and who are buying into this wisdom and value this wisdom as if it's it's, uh, empowering and important and and it may be a means of of value to you in order to advance your life and your well-being. He says, be warned, first of all, because this wisdom is of this age. And he basically is importing all of these ideas into that phrase as a critique. He's warning them. That the wisdom of this age is fundamentally antithetical to the wisdom of God. There's a sharp antithesis, and they cannot be reconciled. The wisdom of this age and the wisdom of the Word of God cannot be reconciled. One inflicts people with satanic blindness, while one opens eyes. One numbs the mind to truth while the other opens it and empowers you to live by it. One distracts from the gospel and throws stumbling blocks in the way to believing it and maintaining it and holding on to it. And one tightens the grip upon the truth and conviction of truth in the heart. One form of wisdom gives a real knowledge of God that is freeing and liberating and life-changing. The other kind of wisdom has no true knowledge of God in it. It just has the appearance of religion and worship. But is of no value, Paul says. That's his first critique there of this wisdom. And he's trying to get the Corinthian church to realize that buying into this kind of wisdom can only lead to dreadful spiritual effects. The other way he sets up the contrast is not simply say the wisdom of this age. He goes on to say the wisdom that he preaches is not of this age. And it's not, secondly, of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So first of all, Paul qualifies the wisdom and characterizes the wisdom of this world. And now he says this is what's going to happen to it. It's going to pass away. I want to work with that phrase for a moment because it can be subject to some misunderstanding. First of all, we begin with the rulers of this age. I don't believe that Paul is simply referring to Nero, or the Caesars, or to the local governors, or the provincial rulers or leaders, or the senatorial uh, members, or whatever. The Apostle Paul, when he uses this phrase, rulers of this age, is thinking of the powerful and the elite and the influential. Same kind of people who, he said the Corinthians were not, for instance, back in 126. He 
saying the people who are supposedly in the know, the people who have the cultural influence, the people who are on the cutting edge of what's going on and who are propagating that, that's who he's referring to when he talks about the rulers of this age. The in the know kinds, the wise and the noble. He says, I don't preach their wisdom, and he goes on to qualify their wisdom and them by saying, they're passing away. A better translation there would be to, to say they are going to be abolished. Paul is not saying that the rulers of this age have an expiration date on it. Like a milk carton that you go to the grocery store and you buy some milk and it has uh, the no longer good buy such date. It expires. It goes bad. Paul is not simply saying they're going to expire here. Which would be a critique in and of itself to say that the wisdom of this world is eventually just going to be out of fad. It will no longer be what's in. And you're going to have to change your wisdom. Like it happens constantly in our age. Paul's not simply saying that it's expiring. The word there is destroy. God is going to destroy it. It's in the passive tense here in the original. It's passing away. Why is it passing away? Why is it going to be abolished? Because the Lord's going to judge it. The Lord is going to judge the wisdom of this age and all who propagate it. And so Paul is saying if you continue to align yourself with this philosophy of reality in this way of thinking, you are going to be along with them subject to divine judgment. You know, what an encouragement to the people of God, in a sense. At least the ones who are not buying into it and are governing their lives by it and thinking by means of that wisdom and living their life by means of that. What Paul is saying is that the wisdom that appears so powerful and so influential and so fortified against attack will one of these days be utterly destroyed. You begin to realize what a consolation and encouragement that is when you begin to interact with the titans of learning in our era. They seem so self-assured of the wisdom that they seem to possess is so self-confident. And as they evaluate the wisdom of the Word of God and the concept of a crucified Savior and the concept of an inspired Word of God and a concept of a sovereign, powerful, omnipotent, supernatural Creator, they look at what you believe in, they look at it if it's the most irrelevant, uh, superficial, mind-numbing kind of religion mythology that you can imagine. And when Christians interact with that kind of philosophy on a daily basis, day after day after day, where it's so prevalent in our culture, particularly in the education system, it begins to leave us with some doubts. In all honesty, it begins to, to sort of chip away at our, at our convictions and, and erode the, the confidence that we have in the Word. After all, if the Word of God was more powerful, wouldn't it have such a more apparent... Uh, pervasive and powerful effect. Well, Paul doesn't argue that kind of way. He doesn't say, well, let's judge which wisdom is better by which wisdom seems to be dominating the world. He doesn't say, let's evaluate which wisdom is correct by seeing how many people believe in the various forms of wisdom. 
doesn't say, let's evaluate which wisdom is better and buy into particular wisdom that has the most adherence to the most influential, most powerful, and the smartest people of our age. Paul simply rebukes it and reproves it by saying, it's of this age, meaning it is worldly, it is not of God, it is passing away, and that it will be judged for its anti-God, anti-Christ origin and nature and impact. So he says, I don't preach that kind of a wisdom. But if we want to get into this word game of calling our philosophies wisdom, he says, look at mine. He says, look at mine. Let's see which wisdom is truly wise and from above. He first of all says in verse 6, he says, we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. And then in verse 7 now, he begins to qualify his wisdom. And first of all, he says it's divine. I hope your Bibles have uh, but as the very first word of verse 7. Because it's really a powerful contrast that Paul is making. Looking back to verse 6, where he talks about the wisdom uh, that uh, the Corinthians are being influenced by. It's a wisdom of this age, and it's of the rulers of this age, which is a passing away wisdom, which is a wisdom under judgment, which is a wisdom from men, which is a wisdom from below. And now, sharp contrast, he says, but we speak, first of all, God's wisdom. In other words, we speak a wisdom that is not the wisdom which is the subject of disputation in the academic hallowed halls. Where people carve up truth with syllogisms and infamies and metaphors. No, he says, that's not our wisdom. We speak the wisdom of God. And then he qualifies that by saying, in a mystery... In a mystery, the hidden wisdom of the ages. And now we're getting a little bit closer to what Paul means by the use of the word wisdom. First of all, he says it's in a mystery. He's not saying we speak in a mystery, as if we're just babbling nonsense, and only people who have uh, secret goggles or hearing devices can understand what we're saying. Wisdom is a category of New Testament revelation. Just listen to some of these verses I'm going to give you. Romans chapter 16. Paul talks about a mystery which he preaches, which has been kept secret from long ages past, but is now manifested. Colossians chapter 1, he talks about the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has been manifested to his saints. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, he talks about a mystery that's been made known to us, that is, the apostles and then unto the church, which is a mystery according to God's will. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, he refers to this mystery of Christ, which he says was not made known to other generations. We can look at other texts, but I think you're beginning to see here that when Paul uses this word mystery, he has a very particular way in which he is using it, as a specific sense and understanding and definition. And he says in some of the texts that we've already read through here, this mystery is also uh, corresponds with another term which is hidden or secret. 
It's something that hasn't been made known. Well, Paul brings all of those ideas together here in verse 7. He says it's a mystery. He says that it's been hidden. And he says it's something that God has predestined before the ages to our glory. Let me bring one more text into the picture which may help clarify for us what Paul is driving at here. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 where the Apostle Paul says that he has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own power and grace. Now note this. Power and grace or purpose and grace he says was granted us in Christ from eternity has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. What's the wisdom? What could Paul possibly mean when he says in verse 7, we speak wisdom of God in a mystery, hidden, which has been predestined from ages to our glory? He said, we're going to get in this verbal game of calling what we are following and believing in wisdom. He says, here's mine. Not of this age, nor the rulers of this age. It's a wisdom which is from God. Ordained from eternity, revealed now. It's about Christ. It's about His cross. It's about the revelation of the gospel. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is driving at. The wisdom which uh, he follows and what the churches to follow is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now, here is Paul's main argument. We'll settle in on it until the end of our message. It's in verses 8 and 9. The wisdom that he is preaching is a wisdom that is not accessible by the mind apart from revelation. The wisdom that he is preaching is a wisdom which is not accessible by the human mind apart from revelation. And he now develops an argument to defend that beginning in verse 8. He says, which wisdom? None of the rulers of this age has understood. You see, that wisdom that he's speaking about in verse 7, which is a mystery, which is hidden, which is predestined. The gospel, in other words. He says in verse 8, none of the rulers of this age has understood. A better translation of that would be known. They didn't know it. They did not know it. That's what the word literally means in the original. They did not know this wisdom that Paul is preaching. What's the proof? Well, Everything that follows in verses 8 and 9. He said, If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Let's begin to unpack this thought here that that Paul puts together. It's fairly compact and fairly dense, but it's really the heart of his argument to the Corinthians why they should listen to his preaching and not be influenced by the wisdom of the culturally elite and influential. First of all, because he says they didn't know it. The rulers of this age didn't know it. And the rulers of this age here is the very same phrase we find back in verse 6. It is a reference to the people who are the cultural elite and the influential. But here it probably zeroes in more closely upon a certain set of figures who are representative of the rulers of this age and the culturally elite and the savvy and the wise. And, And it's obviously here referring to the Jews and the Romans, right? Because as they crucified the Lord of glory. So as representatives of this other way of thinking, Paul zeroes in on the Jews who were the ones who formed the Sanhedrin, who were responsible for handing Jesus over to crucifixion under Pilate, right? 
You remember all of the power brokers who were there evaluating Jesus and, and interrogating Him and asking Him what He was saying. You remember how it was all motivated and inspired by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The Annases and the Caiaphases, the high priests, the leaders of the Sadducees, the power brokers of Jerusalem. But it wasn't just them, it was also Pilate, under Roman rule, was the one who finally delivered Jesus over to death, condemned him as guilty, and presided over his execution. Paul is referring to those kinds of people. He said they crucified the Lord of glory. Now this is all part of Paul's argument, why his wisdom is superior. He uses a very in my view, sort of an inflammatory term to get them to start thinking about what the wisdom of the world really does and how foolish it is and how ignorant it really is because he says, the, the best and the brightest of the world crucified the Lord of glory. Harder to come up with a more clear way of referring to the divinity of Christ than calling Him the Lord of glory. It's a very, very clear reference to Psalm 24 which refers to the King of Glory as the Lord the gates are to be opened up to who? the King of Glory who is Almighty Paul takes that very same phrase from Psalm 24 and he applies it to Jesus Christ he's underscoring the divinity of our Savior And just as an aside, that gets us into a question that I don't want to spend a lot of time upon, but it it almost puts Paul in a jam, in a sense, to say that they crucified the Lord of glory. By referring to Jesus with that title, Lord of glory, Paul is highlighting His divine nature. He says, they crucified the one who was divine. How do we deal with that? Well, uh, what we would argue is that the person of Christ is a very mysterious and complex person. The person of Christ includes both a human nature and a divine nature. That's at the heart of what it means to have salvation in Jesus Christ alone, that God became flesh. The Spirit just didn't come upon somebody who was alive at that time already and sort of make that person kind of divinely anointed. I mean, the Bible tells us that under the conception of the Holy Spirit, under the power of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary conceived and God became man. He became flesh. But it was God. The God-man. Our mediator is both God and man. And sometimes when the New Testament writers refer to Jesus Christ, and this is the difficult part of what I'm about ready to say, Sometimes when they will use a name that is divine, which would seem to point to the divine side of this person, they'll on the other hand attribute something to that person which is completely human. Like death. God couldn't die, right? What other kinds of things couldn't happen to God, which are said to have happened to Jesus Christ? Well, God couldn't be born, He's eternal. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is from everlasting to everlasting God. So He could never be born, but yet we are told that Jesus Christ was born of a woman. We find Jesus being ignorant of certain things in the Gospel. We find Jesus 
eating and getting hungry in the Gospels. We find Jesus getting tired in the Gospels. A number of things that couldn't possibly apply to divine nature because God is self-contained and self-fulfilled at all times. Never lacking anything. But that is part of Paul's argument. I hope you haven't gotten confused in some of the things I'm talking about here. Remember, he's talking about his wisdom. And at the heart of the heart of his wisdom is this substance. Jesus Christ. A mysteriously divine and human person. We're driving to the point here, so just track with me. The Lord of glory. These cultural elites academically sophisticated on the cutting edge of wisdom people put the Lord of glory to death. They crucified him. Paul points the finger at them and says they are responsible. Yes, it was in God's plan that this divine person, the Lord of glory, they put on a cross. And why did they do that? Because Paul says they were ignorant. They did not know. He said if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I'm trying to prove something here which Paul is arguing for. He is saying the wisdom which he preaches is infinitely superior to the wisdom of the smartest people of his age and the kind of wisdom that the Corinthians are being disposed to follow and live out in their life. The wisdom of the smart people, and what Paul says, the wisdom of the smart people was so ignorant and so foolish that it ignorantly crucified the Lord of glory. Look at the rulers he refers to, the Greek, or rather the Romans and the Jews. The, the, the Jewish religion being the highest, most pure form of religion before Christianity the world has ever known. The Romans, who were the most sophisticated, organized, political system the world had ever known. What did they do? They crucified the Lord of glory in ignorance. Because they could not know this wisdom of God. Because it was a mystery. Because it was hidden. Think about the critique for a second. This is the irony of the cross in a sense. Here you have the Jews who were the most advanced religious people on earth in a sense. Crucifying the Lord of glory who was their Messiah. Who is one of their own. Who is the flesh and blood of their father Abraham. Why did they do it? We're told that Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, not long before Jesus' actual crucifixion, in a clandestine meeting of the religious leaders of Israel, stood up in John chapter 11, verse 50, and he says, It is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Caiaphas, the high priest who presided over Jesus' trial, and pushed him on to Pilate for execution, was motivated to save the nation by crucifying Christ. To dig back in the context, you see why he said that. 
Verse 47 of John 11 talks about how the religious people, the priests and so forth, were upset because they said all the people are following after Jesus because he's performing so many signs. Jesus had specifically just healed Lazarus by bringing him back from the dead. That miracle was so well attested and spread so far, so fast, that the hillsides of, of, uh, of Palestine came alive at the knowledge that Jesus had raised this poor man Lazarus from a grave. All seeking after Christ. And what the religious leaders began to realize is that if they let this Jesus go another moment, that their religion is over. That their place of being in the position of respect and being looked up to as the religious leaders of their day and the people would know, they realized that was going to come to an end. And so in their wisdom, what did they do? They said, if we want to save our place of position, prominence, and respect, then we need to kill or see to it that this Jesus is taken care of. And yet the irony of all that is that in trying to save themselves, they drove home the nail of judgment into their coffin and by participating in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ opened up salvation for the world. Do you see how pitiful their wisdom is? That's what Paul is saying. Here are the best and the brightest and the smartest and the wisest people and what they did was to contribute to the salvation of the world, which was the opposite of their intentions. Because they did not know the wisdom of God. You see, the wisdom of God is far superior, and that's what he goes on to underscore in verse 9. He says, Just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard, which has not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Every single organ there of the body that is listed was considered the tools of learning. The eye has not seen it. That's a reference to empirical observation. The ear has not heard it. That's a reference to tradition. A story being passed on from one generation to the next. Neither has entered into the heart of man the organ of insight and intuition. He said the best tools that human beings have to understand the world around them and to use in order to gain knowledge and understanding could not possibly have known the mystery of God. Which is the cross of Jesus Christ. He's saying... God's wisdom is infinitely superior than the wisdom of men. You could not literally think this message up. That's fascinating if you think about it. Because if you study the history of religion, you will find for yourself that there is nothing like the message of the cross anywhere. 
There is absolutely nothing like the message of the cross anywhere in the history of religion where God becomes incarnate, not just rests momentarily on another person, but actually becomes our flesh, is actually born, actually grows up and lives a life like the Gospels tell us our Savior did. Who lived a perfect life. Who willingly gave himself up to and submitted to crucifixion. And then was raised by the power of God the third day after. No message like this anywhere. And that crucifixion not being an example of good works or love, but of the outpouring of divine wrath upon the Savior to satisfy His wrath against our sin. You see, Paul is from different angles here, exposing the weakness, the superficiality, the emptiness, really, of man-made wisdom, and saying, this is what I speak. A message which is a mystery, hidden, predestined before the ages, but is about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's the wisdom you must cling to. And you ask, what is the payoff? What's the practical benefit of that? Remember, Paul is addressing a church that is divided. And as we think about that question, as we close off our message this morning, I'm going to have you turn with me to James chapter 3. Because that's what we should be asking. Why would Paul be uh, spending so much time showing uh, the weakness and the superficiality of this man-made wisdom? And why would he be exalting him this wisdom of God, which was a mystery, which was predestined, which is revealed, which is about Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Why would he be saying that to this church, which is experiencing great division and arguments and falling to pieces and coming to pieces at the seams? And the answer is because these two forms of wisdom have two kinds of effects. James talks about this wisdom, which is, first of all, from below. The very kind of wisdom that Paul says is of this age. If you look at verse 14, you'll see it. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. He says, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. It's earthly. You see that? He refers to an earthly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that Paul's attacking Colossians 2, and notice what it produces. He says it's natural, it's demonic, that's its nature, and then here are its effects in verse 16. Where jealousy, selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every evil thing. You see what happens when you follow the wisdom which is of this age? And you'll try to use that wisdom to get along with each other in the church? There you will have jealousy and selfish ambition and disorder and every evil thing. Does that sound like the book of Corinthians to you? A church that is divided? A church that is tolerant of sexual immorality? A church that tolerates incest? A church where people are taking each other to court and suing each other? A church that's bitterly divided? You see why Paul's attacking that wisdom? Because of what it produces. James goes on to describe a different wisdom, the kind of wisdom that Paul preaches. He says this is wisdom from above. 
It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and of good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you see what this wisdom produces? You see what happens uh, when you follow the wisdom which Paul proclaims, which is a wisdom of the cross. He says what it does is it produces peace among God's people. It's full of mercy and good fruits. You see how important it is for your life? And this is what I hope we get. You see how important it is for your life to get the gospel right. It's not just about having forgiveness of my sins and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to me. It is certainly about my justification. But it doesn't end there. It's certainly about the salvation of souls because if we don't preach this gospel, no one will be saved. Yes, it's about that too. But it's not just about that. It's critical for us to get this gospel right because it not only saves, it not only justifies, it's not only a tool that God uses to bring His elect to Himself, but it's also bringing with it a wisdom which teaches us how to live for the glory of God and the body of Christ. It's a gospel, it's a wisdom that produces a whole new set of circumstances where people stop acting out of jealousy, where people stop acting out of selfish ambition. A circumstance that is not full of disorder and evil things. It's a whole new wisdom with a whole new set of effects. And so the challenge is very clear for us this morning. It's first of all to see whether we're following the right gospel, first of all. Yes, it's about that. The challenge is, are, are we following the wisdom of God, which is about the right gospel, which is about Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our salvation? Yeah, we have to ask that question. But the second question we have to ask of ourselves, in view of our lives, is do we really believe that wisdom? And we can see whether we really believe that wisdom by how we live. Because that wisdom produces in us what James calls the fruit of righteousness. You know, if we go back and we look at our lives this morning and we find that we've got these kinds of things which James talks about. Jealousy, bitterness, selfish ambition, quarreling, disorder then what Paul calls upon you to do this morning is to repent of following that false wisdom. To repent of following false wisdom. Wisdom which is from below. And to go back to the cross. And to seek forgiveness in Christ. And then to adorn that model of wisdom and put it into practice in our life. And when we do that, we'll enjoy what James calls here the fruit of righteousness in our life. Let's pray.